calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Warning. This week's Drabblecast is on the adult side of things. Dark, spine-tingling stuff with adult themes. Just a heads up. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 321. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. On this week's show, we look the devil between the eyes. Well, not really, this is a podcast, so we can't. So we'll just listen to him incessantly overact in that annoying Boston-y accent of his. Ben Affleck. As... Satan. I'm the original straight, first foremost, pimp, Mac and hustler, original gangsters, gangster. From, of course, his magnum ninth circle of the Inferno opus, the film Giggly. Giggly, like, rhymes are really. Rhymes with evilly, if you ask Virgil, and Homeboy was a poet. And Ben Affleck's the next Batman, huh? I don't know how I feel about this. And he shall come unto thee, a false prophet in wolves, reclusive billionaire CEOs, vigilante man-bat alter egos, latex clothing, and lead thy flock to destruction. In an uncertain world, Stam's coming. Hey, go Red Sox. Justice wears a mask. Time to take out the garbage. <coughs> so hard to talk like this. <laughs> How did Christian Bale do it? My parents got murdered. That's why I wear all this bat shit. Clothes, I mean. Real bat shit's called guano or something. Love is a game. What is it about the wrong kind of man? It's the car. Chicks dig the car. Power is a machine. The night is darkest just before the dawn. Of course it's darkest before dawn, Javi. It's called a solar day. What are you, retarded? I am the Batman. Bullshit. This guy's a f***ing Yankees fan. 
I am. <coughs> Christ. Whatever Gotham needs me to be. Except for no homo. Chowder. Love remains. My eyes become alive and the light that you shine can't be seen. What if it was actually a typo in the Bible the whole time and Satan just really wanted our seal? It's a super old text and I don't know Aramaic, do you? Fingers crossed for you, buddy. Also, only time you'll ever hear me say go Red Sox in the show is as Ben Affleck as Batman with a bad Boston accent. We all have our lines. Have it. Salmon. Hand the record. It's wicked hard to pack. Let's hit a hundred word story. Trouble. This week's travel is called A Deal with the Devil by Eric Marsh. Eric lives on a ranch in Lockhart, Texas, where he's a volunteer firefighter that writes software and drabbles. Find more of his drabbling at eric-marsh.blogspot.com. I like you, boy, said the devil. Tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna let you have anything you want. No strings attached. Want a pretty girl? Just take her. Want to rob a bank? Go ahead. Nobody can touch you while you're my friend. Don't you want my soul or something like that? Tom asked. Oh, got plenty of them, son said the Prince of Darkness. Don't need no more. Old Lucifer knew evil, and he knew it don't need his help. He smiled and said, You go on now and have yourself a good time. Hey, baby, did you just fall from heaven? Cause you are Lucifer and must be smitten from this realm. Quickly place the cursed infant upon the altar. Shouldn't be trying to pick up strange babies in the first place, unless they're being carried off by ants or something. And even then, you don't know the situation. And for our feature story this week, we bring you The Goat Cutter by Jay Lake. Jay Lake lives in Portland, Oregon, where he works on numerous writing and editing projects. His short fiction appears regularly in oodles of literary and genre markets worldwide, and he's got some great ones here on the Drabblecast. There's, of course, the classic story, Clown Eggs, which any true fan of the Drabblecast should be well acquainted with, as episode 115, Over the Walls of Eden in episode 133, coincidentally also a story with some pretty strong parallels to Lucifer, The Fall of Man, and Milton's Paradise Lost. And, of course, his standout Lovecraft mythos piece, The Tentacled Sky, which was a Drabblecast original, and which we ran in episode 178 as part of our HP Lovecraft Tribute Month. Jay's the winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, and a multiple nominee for the Hugo and World Fantasy Awards. Follow him at jlake.com. So, without further ado, we bring you The Goat Cutter by Jay Lake.
The devil lives in Houston, by the ship channel, in a high-rise apartment, 57 stories up. They say he's got cowhide sofas and a pinball machine and a telescope in there that can see past the oil refineries and across Pasadena all the way to the Pope in Rome and on to where them Arabs pray to that big black stone. He can see anyone anywhere from his place in the Houston sky and he can see inside their hearts. But I know it's all a lie. Cause I know the devil lives in an old school bus in the woods outside of Dale, Texas. He don't need no telescope to see inside your heart on account he's already there. This, I know. Central Texas gets mighty hot come summer. The air rolls in heavy off the gulf, carries itself over 200 miles of cow shit and sorghum fields, and settles heavy on all our heads. The katydids buzz in the woods like electric fans with bad bearings, and even the skeeters get too tired to bite most days. You can smell the dry coming off the Johnson grass and out of the bar ditches. Me and my best friend Pootie, we like to run through the woods, climbing barbed wire and following pipelines. Trees is smaller there, easier to slip between. You gotta watch out in deer season, though. Idiots come out of Austin or San Antonio to their leases, get blind drunk and shoot every blessed thing that moves. Rest of the time, there's nothing but you and them turkey vultures. Of course, you can't steal beer coolers from turkey vultures. The devil, he gets on pretty good with them turkey vultures. So me and Pootie was running the woods one afternoon, somewhere in the middle of summer. We was out of school, waiting to be sophomores in the fall, fixing to amount to something. Pootie was bigger than me, but I already got tongue from Martha Dempsey just a week or so ago back behind the church hall. I even scored a little titty squeeze inside her shirt. It was over her bra, but that counts for something. I knew I was coming up good. Pootie swears he saw Rachel McIntyre's nipples, but she's his cousin. I reckon he just peeked through the bathroom window of his aunt's trailer house, which ain't no different from me watching Mama get out the shower. It don't count. If there was anything to it, he'd have sucked on him, and I'd have never heard the end of that. Of course, I wouldn't say no to my cousin Linda if she offered to show me a little something. Yeah, that year we was big boys. The summer was hot and we was always hungry and horny. And then, and we met the devil. Me and Pootie crossed the barbed wire fence near the old bus wallow on County Road 61, where they finally built that little bridge over the draw. Doug Bob Aronson had that place along the south side of 61, spent his time roasting goats, drinking tequila, and shooting people's dogs. Doug Bob was okay if you didn't bring a dog. Three years back, once we'd turned ten, he let me and Pootie drink his beer with him. He liked to lick her up, strip down to his underwear, and get his ass real warm from the fire in his smoker. We was just a guy and two kids in their shorts drinking in the woods. 
I'm pretty sure Mama and Uncle Reuben would have had hard words, so I never told. We kind of hoped, now that we was going to be sophomores, he'd crack some of that Sousa commemorativo anejo for us. Doug Bob's place was all grown over, wild rose and stretch vine and beggar's lice everywhere, and every spring a huge-ass wisteria wrapped his old cedar house with lavender flowers and thin whips of wood. There were trees everywhere around in the brush, mesquite and hackberry and live oak and juniper, and a few twisty old pecans. Doug Bob knew all the plants and trees and taught them to us sometimes when he was less than half drunk. He kept some chickens around the place, too, and a mangy duck that waddled away funny when he got to looking at it. We come crashing through the woods one day that summer, hot, hungry, horny, and full of fight. Pooty told me about Rachel's nipples, how they was set in big pink circles and stuck out like little red thumbs. I told him I'd seen that picture in Hustler same as him. If and he was gonna lie, lie from a magazine I hadn't stole us from the Triple E grocery. Doug Bob's cedar house was bigger than three double wides. It was set at the back of a little clearing by the creek that ran down from the bus wallow. He lived there fifty feet from a rusted old school bus that he wouldn't never set foot inside. Only time I asked him about that bus, he cracked me upside the head so hard I saw double for days and had to tell Uncle Reuben I fell off my bike. That would have been a better lie if I'd recollected my bike had been stolen three weeks earlier. Uncle Reuben didn't beat me much worse than normal, and we prayed extra long over the Bible that night for forgiveness. Doug Bob was pretty nice. He about never hit me, and he kept his underpants on when I was around. That old smoker was laid over sideways on the ground where it didn't belong. Generally, Doug Bob had kept better care of it than anything except an open bottle of tequila. He'd cut the smoker from a gigantic water heater so big me and Pooty could have slept in it. Actually, we did a couple times, but you can't never get that ash out of your hair after. And Pooty snored worse than Uncle Reuben. Doug Bob roasted his goats in that smoker, and he was mighty particular about his goats. He always killed his goats himself. They didn't usually belong to him, but he did his own killing, said it made him a better man. I thought it mostly made him a better mess. The meat plant over in Lockhart could have done twice the job in half the time, with no bath in the creek afterward. Of course, when you're sweaty and hot and full of piss and vinegar, there's nothing like a splash around down in the creek with some beer and one of them big cakes of smelly purple horse soap that me and Pooty used to steal from barns. Getting rubbed down with that stuff kind of stings, but it's a good sting. Times like that, I knew Doug Bob liked me just for myself. We'd all smile and laugh and horse around and get drunk. Nobody got hit, nobody got hurt. Everybody went home happy. Doug Bob always had one of these goats, and it was always a buck. Sometimes a white seinen, maybe a creamy La Mancha or a brown Nubian, looked like a chubby deer with them barred goat eyes staring straight into your heart. They was always clean, no socks, no blazes or points, just one color all over. Doug Bob called them unblemished. 
and Doug Bob always killed these goats on the north side of the smoker. He'd laid some rocks down there to make a clear spot for when it was muddy from the winter rain or whatever. He'd cut their throats with his jagged knife that was older than sin and sprinkle the blood all around the smoker. He never let me touch that knife. Doug Bob, he had this old gray knife without no handle, just rags wrapped up around the end. The blade had a funny shape like it got beat up inside a thresher or something, as happened to Mama's sister, Sissy, the year I was born. Her face had that funny shape until Uncle Reuben found her hanging in the pole barn one morning with her dress up over her head. They puttied her up for the viewing at the funeral home, but I recall Aunt Sissy best with those big dents in her cheek and jaw and the one brown eye gone all white like milk and coffee. Doug Bob's knife that I always thought of as Sissy's knife it was kind of wampered and shaped all wrong, like a corn leaf the bug's been at. He'd take that knife and saw the head right off his goat. I never could figure out how Doug Bob kept that edge on. He'd flay that goat, strip some fat back off the inside of the hide, and put the head and the fat right there on the smoker where the fire was going, wet chips of mesquite over a good hot bed of coals. Then he'd drag the carcass down to the creek, to our swimming hole, and sometimes me and Pootie could help with this part. We'd wash out the gut sack and clean off the heart and lungs and liver. Doug Bob always scrubbed the legs specially well with that purple horse soap. We'd generally get a good lot of blood in the water. If it hadn't rained in a while, like most summers, the water'd be sticky for hours afterward. Doug Bob would take the carcass and the sweetbreads. That's what he called the guts, sweetbreads. I figured they looked more like spongy purple and red bruises than bread, kind of like dog food fresh out of the can. And there wasn't nothing sweet about them. Sweetbreads taste better than dog food, though. We ate dog food in the winter sometimes, ate it cold if Uncle Reuben didn't have work and Mom had been lazy. That was when I most missed my summers in the woods with Pootie, calling in on Doug Bob. Doug Bob would drag these goat parts back up to the smoker where he'd take the head and the fat off the fire. He'd always give me and Pootie some of that fat, keep us away from the head meat, I guess. Doug Bob would put the carcass and the sweetbreads on the fire and spit his high-proof tequila all over them. If they didn't catch straight away from that, he'd light them with a bick. We'd watch them burn, quiet, respectful-like, like church, on account of that's what Doug Bob believed. He always said God told him to keep things orderly, somewhere in the beginning of Leviticus. Then he'd close the lid and let the meat cook. He didn't never clean up the blood round the smoker, although he would catch some to write Bible verses on the sides of that old school bus with. The devil lives in San Francisco in a big apartment on Telegraph Hill. 
way up there with all that brass and them parted ferns and naked women with leashes on. He's got a telescope that can see across the bay, even in the fog. They say he can see all the way to China and Asia with little brown people and big red demon gods and stare inside their hearts. A devil, he can see inside everybody's heart, just about. That's all a lie, except that part about the hearts. There's only one place in God's wide world where the devil can't see. Me and Pooty, we found that smoker laying over on its side, which we ain't never seen before. There was a broken tequila bottle next to it, which ain't much like Doug Bob neither. Well, we commenced to running back and forth, calling out Doug Bob and Mr. Aronson and stuff. That was dumb, because if he was around and listening, he'd have heard us giggling and arguing by the time we'd crossed his fence line. I guess we both knew that, because pretty quick we fell quiet and started looking around. I felt like I was on TV or something, and there was a bad thing fixing to happen next. Them saloon doors were flapping in my mind, and I started wishing mightily for a commercial. That old bus of Doug Bob's, it was a long bus, like them revival preachers used to bring their people into town with. I always thought going to glory when you died meant getting on one of them long buses painted white and gold and Bible verses on the side with a choir clapping and singing and some guy in a powder blue suit, hair like a raccoon pelt, kissing you on the cheek, slapping you on the forehead. Well, I've been kissed more than I want to, and I don't know nobody with a suit, no matter the color, and there ain't no choir ever gonna sing me to rest now except if maybe they're playing barbed wire harps and beating time on burnt skulls. But Doug Bob's bus, it sat there flat on the dirt with the wiry bones of tires wrapped over dented black hubs grown with morning glory, all yellow with the rusted old metal showing through, with the windows painted black from the inside crossed over with duct tape. It had a little vestibule Doug Bob built over the double doors out of wood from an old church in Rosanke. The entrance to that vestibule was crossed over with duct tape just like the windows. It was but number seven, whatever place it had come from. And bus number seven was covered with them Bible verses written in goat's blood over and over each other to where there was just red-brown smears on the cracked windshield, across the hood, down the sides, scrambled scribbling that looked like Aunt Sissy's drool on the lunch table at Walmart. And they made about as much sense. I even seen Doug Bob on the roof of that bus a few times, smearing bloody words with his fingers like a message to the turkey vultures. Or maybe all the way to God above, looking down from his air-conditioned heaven. So I figured the smokers tipped, the tequila's broken, here's my long bus bound for glory with Bible verses on the side and the only choir is Katie Did's buzzing in the trees and me and Pooty breathing hard. And then I saw the door of the wooden vestibule on the bus that Doug Bob never would touch was busted open like it'd been kicked out from the inside. The duct tape just flapped loose from the door frame. 
I stared all around that bus, and there was a new verse on the side, right under the driver's window. It was painted fresh, still shiny and red. It said, of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Pooty, huh? He was gasping pretty hard. I couldn't take my stare off the bus, which looked as if it was gonna rise up from the dirt and rumble down the road to salvation any moment. But I knew Pooty had that wild look where his eyes got almost all white and his nose starts to bleed. I could tell from his breathing. Smelled like he wet his pants, too. Pooty, I said again. There ain't no fire, and there ain't no fresh goat been killed. Where'd the blood come from for that there Bible verse? Reckon he talking about your uncle? Pooty's voice was duller than Mama at Christmas. Pooty was an idiot. Uncle Reuben never had no 12,000 in his life. If he ever did, he'd have gone to Mexico and to hell with me and Mama. Pooty, I tried again. Where'd the blood come from? I knew, but I didn't want to be the one to say it. Pooty panted for a little while longer. I finally tore my stare off that old bus, which was shimmering like summer heat, to see Pooty bent over with his hands on his knees and his head hanging down. It ain't his handwriting either, Pooty sobbed. We both knew Doug Bob was dead. Something was splashing around down by the creek. Oh shit, I said. Doug Bob was, is our friend. We gotta go look. It ain't but a few steps to the bank. We could see a man down there, bending over with his bare ass toward us, and he was washing something big and pale. It weren't no goat. Me and Pooty, we stopped at the top of the bank, and the stranger stood up and turned around. I about shit my pants. He had muscles like a movie star and a gold tan all the way down like he'd never wore clothes. The hair on his chest and his short and curlies was blonde and he was hung good. But what near made me puke though was that angel's body had a goat head. Only it weren't no goat head you ever saw in your life. It was like a big, heavy ram's head, except it had antlers coming off top, a 12-point spread of a prize buck, and baby's eyes, big, blue, round in the middle, not goat's eyes. And those blue eyes blazed at me like ice on fire. The tall, golden thing pointed to a body in the creek. He'd been washing the legs with purple soap. Help me with this. I think you know how it needs to be done. His voice was windy and creaky, like he hadn't talked to no one for a real long time. The body was Doug Bob, with his big gut and saggy butt, and a bloody stump of a neck. You son of a bitch! I ran down the bank, screaming and swinging my arms for the biggest punch I could throw. 
I don't know. Maybe I tripped over a root or stumbled at the water's edge, but that golden thing moved like summer lightning just as I slipped off balance. Last thing I saw was the butt end of Doug Bob's ragged old knife coming at me in his fist. I heard Pooty crying my name when my head went all red and painful. The devil lives in your neighborhood, yours and mine. He lives in every house, in every town, and he has a telescope that looks out the bathroom mirror and up from the drains in the kitchen and out of the still water at the bottom of the toilet bowl. He can see inside everyone's heart, through their eyes and down their mouth and up their asshole. It's true. I know it is. The hope I hold secret deep inside my heart is that there's one place on God's green earth the devil can't see. I was naked, my dick curled small and sticky to my thigh like it does after I've been looking through the bathroom window. A tight little trail of cum itched my skin. My ass was on dirt. I could feel ants crawling up the crack. I opened my mouth to say, fine, and a fly buzzed out from the inside. There was another one in the left side of my nose that seemed ready to stay a spell. I didn't really want to open my eyes. I knew where I was. My back was against hot metal. It felt sticky. I was leaning against Doug Bob's bus, and part of that new Bible verse about Uncle Reuben under the driver window had run and got Doug Bob's heart blood all down my back. I could smell mesquite smoke, cooked meat, shit, blood, and the old oily metal of the bus. But in all my senses, in the feel of the rusted metal, in the warmth of the ground, in the stickiness of the blood, in the sting of the ant bites, in the touch of the fly crawling inside my nose, in the stink of Doug Bob's rotten little yard, there was something missing. It was an absence, a space, like when you get a tooth busted out in a fight and notice it not being there. I was surrounded by absence, cold in the summer heat. My heart felt real slow. I still didn't want to open my eyes. You know, said that windy, creaky voice, sounding even more hollow and even thinner than before. If they would just repent of their murders, their sorceries, their fornication, and their thefts, this would be a lot harder. The voice was sticky, like the blood on my back, and cold coming in from the middle of whatever was missing around me. I opened my eyes and squinted into the afternoon sun. Doug Bob's face smiled at me. Leastwise, it tried to. Up close, I could tell a whole lot of it was burnt off, with griddle marks where his head had lain a while on the smoker. Blackened bone showed through across the cheeks. Doug Bob's head was duct-taped to the neck of that glorious golden body, greasy black hair falling down those perfect shoulders. The head kept trying to lop over as he moved, like it was stuck on all whompered. 
His face was puffy and burnt up, weirder than Doug Bob mostly ever looked. The smoker must have been working again. The golden thing with Doug Bob's head had Pooty spread out naked next to the smoker. I couldn't tell if he was dead, but he sure wasn't moving. Doug Bob's legs hung over the side of the smoker, right where he'd always put the goat legs. Sissy's crazy knife was in that golden right hand, hanging loose like Uncle Reuben holds his when he's fixing to fight someone. I don't understand. I tried to talk, but burped up a little bit of vomit and another fly to finish my sentence. The inside of my nose stung with the smell, and the fly in there didn't seem to like it much. You stole Doug Bob's head. You see, my son, I have been set free from my confinement. My time is at hand. Doug Bob's face wrinkled into a smile as some of his burnt lips scaled away. I wondered how much a Doug Bob was still down in the creek. But even I cannot walk the streets with my proud horns. His voice got sweeter, stronger as he talked. I stared up at him, blinking in the sunlight. Rise up and join me. We have much work to do, preparations for my triumph. As the first to bow to my glory, you shall rank high among my new disciples and gain your innermost desire. Uncle Reuben taught me long ago how this sweet bullshit always ends. The old Doug Bob liked me, maybe even loved me a little. He was always kind to me, which this golden Doug Bob ain't never gonna be. It must be nice to be loved a lot. I staggered to my feet, farting ants, using the ridges of the sheet metal of the bus for support. It was hot as hell, and even the katydids had gone quiet. Except for the turkey vultures circling low over me, I felt like I was alone in a giant dirt coffin with a huge blue lid over my head. I felt expanded, swollen in the heat, like a dead coyote by the side of the road. The thing wearing Doug Bob's head narrowed his eyes at me. There was a faint crickling sound as the lids creased and broke. Get over here, now. His voice had the menace of a Sunday morning twister headed for a church, the power of a wall of water in the arroyo where kids played. I walked toward the devil, feet stepping without my effort. There's a place I can go, inside, when Uncle Reuben's pushing into me, or he's using the metal end of his belt, or Mama's screaming through the thin walls of our trailer the way he can make her do. It's like ice cream without the cone, like cotton candy without the stick. It's like how I imagine Rachel McIntyre's nipples, sweet and total, like my eyes and heart are in my lips, and the world has gone dark around me. It's the place where I love myself, deep inside my heart. I went there and listened to the little shuffling of my pulse in my ears. My feet walked on without me, but I couldn't tell. 
Sissy's knife spoke to me. The devil must have put it in my hand. We come again to Moria, it whispered in my heart. It had a voice like its metal blade, cold from the ground and old as time. What do you want? I asked. I must have spoke out loud because Doug Bob's burned mouth was twisted in screaming rage as he stabbed his golden finger down toward Booty, naked at my feet next to the smoker. All I could hear was my pulse and the voice of the knife. Deep inside my heart, the knife whispered again. Do not lay a hand on the boy. The golden voice from Doug Bob's face was distant thunder in my ears. I felt his irritation, rage, frustration building up where I had felt that cold absence. I tried again. I don't understand. Doug Bob's head bounced up and down, the duct tape coming loose. I saw pink, ropey strings working to bind the burned head to his golden neck. He cocked back a fist, fixing to strike me a hard blow. I felt the knife straining across the years toward me. You have a choice. The enemy promises anything and everything for your help. I can give you nothing but the hope for an orderly world. You choose what happens now and after. I reckon the devil would run the world about like Uncle Reuben might. Doug Bob was already dead, Pootie was next, and there wasn't nobody else like them in my life, no matter what the devil promised. I figured there was enough hurt to go around, and I knew how to take it into me. Another one of Uncle Reuben's lessons. Where you want this killing done? I asked. The golden thunder in my ears paused for a moment. The tide of rage lapped back from the empty place where Doug Bob wasn't. The fist dropped down. Right here, right now, whispered the knife. Or it will be too late. Seven is being opened. I stepped out of my inside place to find my eyes still open and Doug Bob's blackened face inches from my nose. His teeth were burnt and cracked and his breath reeked of flies and red meat. I smiled, opened my mouth to speak, but instead of words, I swung Sissy's knife right through the duct tape at the throat of Doug Bob's head. He looked surprised. Doug Bob's head flew off, bounced into the bushes. The golden body swayed still on its feet. I looked down at Pootie, the old knife cold in my hands. And then I heard buzzing, like thunder made of wires. I don't know if you ever ate a fly, accidental or not. They go down fighting, kinda tickle your throat. You get a funny feeling for a second, and then it's all gone. Not very filling, either. These flies came pouring out of the ragged neck of that golden body. They were big, the size of horse flies. All at once, they were everywhere, and they came right at me. They came pushing at my eyes and my nose and my ears and flying right into my mouth, crawling down my throat. It was like stuffing yourself with raisins till you choke, except these raisins crawled and buzzed and bit at me. The worst 
was when they got all over me, crowded into my butt crack, pushed on my asshole, wrapped around my balls like Uncle Reuben's fingers, right before he squeezed tight. My skin rippled as if them flies crawled through my flesh. I jumped around, screaming, slapping at my skin. My gut heaved, but my throat was full of flies and it all met in a knot at the back of my mouth. I rolled to the ground, choking on the rippling mess that I couldn't spit out or swallow back down. Through the flies, I saw Doug Bob's golden body falling in on itself like a balloon that's been popped. And then the choking took me off. I lied about the telescope. I don't need one. Right after, while I was still mostly myself, I sent Pootie away with that old knife to find one of Doug Bob's kin. They needed that knife to make their sacrifices that would keep me shut away. I made Pootie seal me inside the bus with Doug Bob's duct tape before he left. The bus is hot and dark, but I don't really mind. There's just me and the flies and a hot metal floor with rubber mats and a huge stack of old Bibles and hymnals that make it hard for me to move around. It's okay though, because I can watch the whole world from in here. I hate the flies, but they're the only company I can keep. The taste grows on me. I know Pootie must have found someone to give that old knife to. I try the door sometimes, but they hold firm. Somewhere, one of Doug Bob's brothers or uncles or cousins cuts goats the old way. Someday, I'll find him. I can see every heart except one, but there are too many to easily tell one from another. There's only one place under God's golden sun the devil can't see into, and that's his own heart. I still have my quiet place. That's where I hold my hope, and that's where I go when I get too close to the goat cutter. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Leviticus 1.10 The burnt offering must be from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats. He is to offer a male without defect. He is to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord. He is to wash the inner parts and legs with water, and Aaron's sons shall sprinkle its blood against the altar. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must never go out. Love that twist. I'm a fan of Southern Gothic, and this one really worked for me. In fact, I had a pretty vivid nightmare about a man living in an old beat-up bus in the woods the night after I first read this. I don't think there was much else than just setting. Vultures, hot tin, vines, ants, and questionable stains on the sand. But it didn't need anything else to be one of the most unnerving dreams I can remember having. Just a creepy, reclusive guy living in an old, taped-up bus under the shade of some twisty old pecans. Where do you run off to when you get a little too close to the goat cutter?
If you enjoyed our story this week, remember we brought it to your ears through the support of listeners who ponied up and donated to the show, even though they still get it and share it for free because they realize that if people like them didn't do that regularly, we'd have to pack up shop and roll away with the tumbleweed. Consider making a donation to the Drabblecast. Anyone with a check card, credit card, or PayPal account can do so by hitting up Drabblecast.org and hitting the support options there to your right. Or if you aren't into all that highfalutin technology or think the devil lives in PayPal with a telescope that sees all the way into your belly button, we accept personal checks too. You get a receipt that you unfortunately can't turn in for a tax deduction, but you can keep in your records to remind you how awesome you are helping us pay authors for their work and put together a good program week to week. Hit us up at Drabblecast at Drabblecast.org for more info on how to donate that way. All right, on to our 100-character story winner this week. Each week, of course, we run a contest from our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org, where we pick a winner and run it on the show, as well as tweet it out on our Twitter feed, which is at the Drabblecast if you want to follow us there. Our winner this week is Matt Weller, and this is his 100-character story. Excited to see a Martian feline, NASA spun to view the tracks behind the rover, only to find Curiosity had killed the cat. Nice. Try writing one yourself, 100 characters exactly, not counting spaces. Post it in our forums at forums.drabblecast.org. We have a space there called the Twabble section. Again, follow us on Twitter each week for the winners early. We're at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Let's close this shit out right with the lesser talked about eighth seal of the apocalypse, singing the soundtrack to everyone's soon to be second least favorite Batman movie, Batman Forever. 19 years ago. Can you believe that? F*** you, Father Time. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. If you remember and have a minute, write us a review on iTunes or blog about us, tell a friend, spread the weird. Special thanks to our awesome episode artist this week, Angsty Boy. And wow, what another phenomenal piece of cover art we got going this week again. Really nails it. Born in a no more existent country to the east, Angsty Boy currently resides under the sea level. As a day job, he designs serious games, and in his spare time, he likes to draw, photograph, and avoid people. You can check out his work at angstyboy.com. Our program this week was brought to you by managing editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, looks like the smoker's working again. There is so much a man can tell you, so much he can say. You remain my power, my pleasure, my Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I 
wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.